Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 8. If you want the notes from last week, I didn't bring them, but if you send me an email, I'll email them to you uh, if you really want them because you didn't have the right ones last week. Um, so we're going to give this a shot, see if I can quote this section without reading it or at least just looking at it occasionally. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that in my imprisonment, uh, in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in Christ because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God with boldness without any fear. Some, to be sure, are proclaiming Christ from um, envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that Christ is proclaimed uh, only that Christ, uh, only that in every way, whether in uh, pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. In this I rejoice, and yes, and I will rejoice, um, and I will rejoice. There we go. Okay. So I'm going to talk about a principle tonight, a couple of them that very few people know. It's a key principle for being used by God to reach lost people, and if we can understand it clearly, it will highly motivate us uh, to live life uh, in a right way, and so we're going to look at it. Number one in your notes, adversity opens up opportunities for us to be a witness for Jesus. So it's, it's the principle of the cross, and what did Jesus do in order for me to be saved? What did he do for you to be saved? Well, he left heaven, and we say, well, that was a pretty big price, and then he emptied himself of all that he was as God. He stripped himself of all the, uh, everything that he was as God, became a man, flesh, like us in every detail and every way. He had no advantage over us other than he had no sin nature. And then as a, a man, while he was nailed to the cross, God took my sin, your sin, and put them on Jesus, and it says he became our sin. That is... He felt the shame, the guilt, everything that we would feel, he felt it. Not just all of my sin, but all of your sin, all of the sin of every individual that had ever lived and would live. He felt the shame and the guilt of that sin on himself as he became that sin. And then, I would guess probably the greatest price of all, God the Father turned his back on Jesus and their fellowship, which had existed for eternity past, was broken. God turned his back on his own son. Their oneness, their unity was broken, and Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he felt the pain of that brokenness between he and his father. He was tortured, and he was crucified, the most painful death that man has ever invented. And then he died, and then he spent three days in hell, uh, being further tormented and punished for my sin and yours. 
And so when you ask the question, what did Jesus do for me to be saved? We often say he died on the cross in sort of an offhand way, thinking, well, he was God after all, so that probably wasn't that big a deal. It was a huge deal, and the price that he paid was incredible. And so the cross is the picture of my salvation, and one of the admonitions in Scripture is that we need to pick up our cross daily if we're going to follow him and serve him. And so if we're going to be a witness for Jesus, one of the things that we need to expect is that there is going to be a price that we'll pay, and our ad. Our adversity opens up many, many opportunities and doors for us to share the gospel. But the problem is, is that we don't recognize that fact, that method, that tool that God uses. And so we become ingrown, uh, we grumble, we complain, we do a lot of things that sort of cancel out uh, God's using us for a witness for him. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 21. Then those who were scattered because of the persecution... The persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Large number who believed turned to the Lord. It begins with the persecution. And the average individual doesn't connect those two the persecution, and the large number who come to Christ. Last uh, two weeks ago, I read to you the founding of the church of Philippi, how it got started in Acts 16. I'll read that again. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Uh, The custom was they would beat them until they were just an inch from death. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This was a torture device where they were spread as far as they could be spread, uh, each of their limbs. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. So I wonder how many people would be doing that after having been beaten with rods and then a torture device. And then they, they sing and pray. The prisoners were listening. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So why did he say that? He had heard the singing and the prayers of Paul while he was uh, being tortured after having been beaten. They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the house. He took them that very, very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And so, again, the connection between Paul being beaten and tortured and then the result of a whole household coming to Christ and being baptized. That's the, the way God works. If you're going to be used by him to reach people, one of the things that he will use is adversity and trials as the soil in which the seed uh, works. One of the statements that Jesus makes is a grain of wheat 
If it, remains by, if it does not fall to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it results in a hundredfold, many, many more grains of wheat coming because of that. And so you might say that we, uh, not falling to the ground and dying to self, end up with nothing. Number two, do you really believe in the providence of God? That is, God is in control. He knows what he's doing. Uh, He controls the details of our life. And so I have this little thing that I say, God, you are good. You are infinitely good. And you love me with a love I cannot comprehend. And you are all-wise, all-knowing. And you control the circumstances of my life, every detail. And I trust you that you are doing that to develop my character and also to provide opportunities for me to serve uh, and to witness and to bear much fruit for you because that's the environment in which uh, that will happen. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Good doesn't mean uh, comfortable. Good means character growth. Good means bearing fruit. God causes all things to work together for good so that I can bear much fruit and grow rapidly in him. Number three, open doors do no good if we aren't looking for them. And don't step through the door and take advantage of the divine appointment. So in the morning when I pray my prayer of commitment, I say, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. One of them is, is I will look for open doors and opportunities to be a witness for you. Please give me eyes to see those so I don't miss them. And Lord, help me to be in such a state of mind that when I see them, I don't avoid it because of busyness or distraction, but that I would take advantage of every single opportunity, open door you provide for me in my life. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look. Lift up your eyes and look. And so when we talk about being a witness for Jesus, one of the things we do is pray, but one of the things we do is is look. And it's very much like uh, when we used to drive with the kids were little and they were all piled into our Volkswagen van. They tended to squabble a bit because eight kids in a Volkswagen van is a bit crowded and so we would do different things to keep peace in the van. And one of them is, is that I would pay them 25 cents for every deer or elk or antelope they saw. And so especially Sam and Seth, they were the troublemakers anyway. And so that kept them looking out the window, uh, looking for deer, elk, or antelope because they got a quarter for everyone they saw. When we drove through Wyoming, I had to reduce it down to a nickel. Uh, because there were too many antelope and I was going to go broke uh, giving it to them. But uh, one of the things that happened is they both hunt now and they can see deer, elk, antelope in the woods probably better than anybody I've ever been uh, associated with hunting. I just trained them at a young age how to spot them, how to see them, and uh, they, they would do that. And so they just developed this uh, habit of looking intently. And it's the same way for us as a witness for Jesus. It's not having to have an opportunity to sort of beat us on the head, but we're looking all day long for just a 
little bit of an opportunity to say a word, to do something, to say something that makes a difference in the lives of people. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, praying at the same time for us that God will open up to us a door for the word. That's what God does. Open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity, making the most of the opportunity. That is, you see the opportunity. You see the open door, and you make the most of it. Number four, God sovereignly brings adversity into our lives to encourage bold witnessing. So I don't know if you've ever gone through a trial and said, Lord, what did I do wrong to deserve this? And maybe a better question would be to ask, Lord, would you help me to be uh, aware of and sensitive to any opportunities you provide because of this adversity to be a witness for you? Uh, Jesus obviously went through incredible adversity to save us, and he uses that in our lives to magnify and enhance our witness and our testimony to others. But the problem is, is we don't like it. And therefore, our response is such that uh, God doesn't use us. Let me read to you again Philippians 1, 12 through 18. And just look for that here as we read it. Now, I want you to know, brethren. I want you to know, brethren. Why does he want them to know that? He wants them to know and understand this principle. That my circumstances, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Garden to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, because of my circumstances, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? You know, I don't know if you remember back when the little one-word rude obnoxious statement began. Whatever. I remember the first time one of my kids said that to me. And my response was, if you ever say that to me again, you will stack every stick of firewood we ever split until Jesus comes. And I will have you dig a ditch outside that's six feet deep and a mile long. So we understood I say something, you don't respond with, whatever. And they said, okay. I don't believe I ever heard it from one of my kids ever again. Whatever. But then I see it's in the Bible. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Do you know why Paul was able to rejoice in trials? Because he knew that immediately following was going to be an open door, an opportunity. He was beat with rods thrown in prison. And he knew that that was going to open up a door for the word, and that's exactly what happened. Five, Paul's life purpose was to proclaim Jesus and the gospel. 
And so, why? Well, because that's what Jesus gave him to do. That was the purpose given to him by Christ. And so, if you had Jesus appear to you where you could see him, as Paul did, and you heard him say to you, this is your life purpose, you probably wouldn't forget that. Acts twenty six fifteen. and I said, who are you, Lord? He was headed to Damascus to persecute believers, and he had this encounter with Jesus. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up and stand on your feet for this purpose. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you, <clears throat> rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So here it is. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Let me read that last one again. This is the purpose he gives to them. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And so Paul got up from that moment on, and that's what his life purpose was, uh, to seek and to save the lost. Number six, that same purpose has been given to us, to me and to you. We just didn't have it given to us in quite the sensational way that Paul did. I suppose that if we had an encounter like Paul did, it would embed itself in our brain and our heart a little bit stronger than it is. John 17, as you sent me into the world, Jesus is praying here for the church. I also have sent them into the world. That's me, that's you. We've been sent even as Jesus was sent. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's a command. Not a good suggestion. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Beginning here, going to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in 2 Corinthians, is probably the clearest commissioning that we have as believers Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Every individual that's been reconciled to Christ has been given the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us, to me, to you, the word of reconciliation. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Number seven, because proclaiming Christ was Paul's purpose, he had been given that purpose by Christ, he rejoiced in trials because he knew they would open up doors to him. He rejoiced in trials because he knew that that trial would be uh, an introduction to a new opportunity. 
to witness to people and to bring them to Christ. So I don't know what the last trial you went through was. It might be a little one, a flat tire. It might be a big one, uh, health-related, job-related. But whatever those trials are, they will be an introduction, an open door, the beginning of an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus if we respond correctly. But because we never attach that, rarely attach that uh, trial, that adversity to a coming opportunity or an open door, we don't look for it, or even God doesn't give it to us. So let me read Philippians 1, 12 through 18 to you one more time. Now I want you to know, brethren, I want you to know, understand this, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So Paul said, I want you to understand this principle, this connection. This is the way it works. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And then at the end of that passage, in this I rejoice because he knew that this would produce an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus. Number eight, when God sovereignly puts us in adversity, he will give us his strength to manage that trial and to be a good witness, but not if we grumble. So the the strength of God uh, is talked about by believers often, but experienced rarely. Let me say that again. The strength of God is talked about often by Christians, but experienced rarely. Because God has some conditions attached for him granting us his strength. And so he brings a trial into our life, and he will bring into us the ability to manage that trial with joy, that we can take uh, We can take on what he gives us because he will grant us everything that we need to manage it and to carry it and to bear up under it and to do it with joy so that we might become uh, effective as a witness for him. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. But the problem is we stuck a screwdriver into the... uh, I was asking an electrician the other day, if I take and put a screwdriver into my, my switch box, my panel box, and touch a couple of those uh, uh, bolts together, what will happen? He says, lightning. I make a mess, burn it all up, start a fire. So God organizes our life and does things in such a way so that he can be glorified through us and we can bear much fruit. One of the basic principles is he will bring adversity into our life and with the adversity grant us strength to be able to live with joy in that situation so that he then opens up a door, brings an opportunity to be a witness for him into our life. But what we do to short-circuit the whole thing is that we grumble. We feel sorry for ourselves. Therefore, we aren't a witness. And we don't experience the strength of God in our life. But we could if we would do it right. 
moving on to chapter 2 in Philippians, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, do all things, all things, everything, without grumbling or disputing. I'm teaching a class on 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, and we're on how to interpret the Bible. And I made the statement that 75% of the Bible is really easy to understand. It basically means just exactly what it says. And so, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Is that a tough one to understand? Makes very clear sense to me. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You might be thinking, how many times do I break that command? So that, here's why, you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. And so God brings adversity into our life, and we respond by rejoicing always, as Paul did. In this, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Because we understand the principle, we are a grain of wheat that falls to the ground, and we bear fruit because of it. We pick up our cross every single day, because the cross represents people coming to Christ. But our response to the cross is rejoicing, and never grumbling or disputing, and then we experience his power in our life, and then we will appear to the world around us as lights that they will be attracted to. Number nine, adversity and trials will quickly reveal our true purpose and values in life. So Paul rejoiced when he went through a trial. He rejoiced when he was beat with an inch of his life. He rejoiced when he was put in a torture Um, machine, as it were, and thrown into the darkest dungeon because he knew this principle. He knew that it was just going to be a matter of time before there was a great opportunity to bring many people to Jesus. And so he sang and he prayed, and as a result, an earthquake came. His uh, chains uh, fell off, and he led the jailer and his whole family to Christ, and the church began in, in the town of Philippi. And so any time that Paul went through adversity and he was beaten numerous times, he was whipped, uh, he was stoned, left for dead. And every time it was like, okay, any minute now, any minute now there's going to be this door open up and I'm going to get an opportunity to share the gospel and a bunch of people have come to Jesus because he understood the concept, he understood the principle. And so if there hadn't been anybody coming to Christ for a while, I imagine Paul was kind of poked a few people, said a few things that aggravate him just so he'd get some persecution because then he'd get an opportunity to witness instead of avoiding it uh, in the way that we tend to do it. Number 10, I was going to read that verse to you again, but I think you've got it memorized by now. Our life purpose will drift off course because of our flesh, the world, the devil. We need to recommit to it often. A life purpose. So I don't know if you have a purpose statement that you've ever written for yourself based on what the Bible says. And so I pray mine every morning when I get up out of bed, the first thing. And uh, it includes, I will do my part to build your church at JBC and around the world. It includes, I will love my wife the way Christ loves the church. It includes, I will be the kind of father to my children and grandchildren that you are to me. And it includes, today, I will live my life 
as a witness, looking for every opportunity that you provide, and I will rejoice, always grumble about nothing, so that I might experience your grace and power and open doors. And, and then I have some others, and every morning I pray that commitment. This is my purpose for living my life, and I want to be used by you and to bear much fruit. Luke 9.23, he was saying to them, this is Jesus, if anyone wishes to come after me, now if you don't want to come after him and serve him and be a witness for him, uh, then this one doesn't apply to you. But if you want to follow him, here's how. He must deny himself, and that basically means um, not going to be uh, upset if I don't have a comfortable life. Uh, in other words, our natural inclination is to want an easy, comfortable, uh, no-hassle life. Must deny himself, take up his cross daily. Take up his cross daily, every day. And so the cross represents salvation. Jesus died on a cross for me to become a believer, and we do the same. We pick up our cross every single day and follow him Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And so at first it seems a little scary to say, Lord, bring it on. But understand that God always supplies the strength, the grace to manage anything that he brings into our life as long as we respond to it correctly. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know it will develop your character and you know that it will be used by God to provide an opportunity to be a witness for him. And then we anticipate those open doors and when we live that way, he grants us the strength to bear up under it. I don't know how we would do if beaten with rods to an inch of our life, but sometimes it'd be kind of fun to give it a try and see what happens, huh? <laughs> no? Oh, all right. Um, so I thought here might be a good chance, uh, time to share with you. We have a strategy for uh, witnessing evangelism. I'll give it to you quickly. Number one, pray every day for your seven for heaven. Now that might be one or it might be 20. It's just people that you live next door to, you're related to, you you're work with, that don't know Christ. And so if you have a list of five, six, seven, even a dozen, and the question is how long would it take you to pray for those? on a daily basis, five minutes. And it's a habit that you develop doing it every day, every day, every day. We have some Seven for Heaven cards out there that uh, one time I preached on this and we handed them out and you filled them out and you turned them in and we laminated them, gave them back, you carried it in your wallet. Now, the same size as a credit card, so it's fairly easy to do that. Um, I have a little prayer app on my, comp on my iPad and I go through it every day. And there's one section that's for family, there's one section for lost people, there's one section for missionaries, and then there's all of you. And so the staff and their family, I pray for weekly, I pray for, excuse me, twice a weekly, I pray for you weekly, I pray for my kids, my grandkids every single day, and I pray for my lost acquaintances every single day. I pray that God would convict them, that he would draw them, that he might give me an opportunity to be a witness in their life. Number two, look for an opportunity to connect with them socially. That may be as little as just having a conversation about hunting or fishing. Might be discovering that you have some things in common, that you both fish, you both play golf or whatever, and doing something actually with them. <clears throat> Number three, listen and look for a need. If you chat with somebody for very long, pretty soon they'll say something uh, 
that will open up a door for you to meet a need in their life. It might be a simple thing of loaning them a tool or helping them tune up their car or taking them a meal. But if you pray for them every day, you become ultra-sensitive to them. God puts that in you. Then you look for an opportunity just to have a conversation with them, to do something socially, listen to conversation. It won't be long before you hear a need that you can meet. Number four, offer to pray for them when you hear of a trial in their life. That is incredibly powerful for building a bridge. If you say to someone, could I, they, they mention their son or daughter is uh, on drugs or they're having trouble at work or they're having trouble with health issues, and you say, could I pray for that for you? And when they say yes, I've never ever had anybody say no. But when they say yes, it's an acknowledgement that indeed it might make a difference. It's an acknowledgement. It's a faith statement that just moves them a little bit closer to faith in Christ. Five, invite them to a Matthew party. Now, you don't have to do that, but that's one of the things we do here, and that's uh, an event that's easy to invite them to because it's not real uh, religious. We had a wild game feed in the gym, and uh, nobody preached. Somebody prayed for the food. And uh, we ate deer and elk and fish and hung out. And we had someone talk to us about fishing in, off, in, off of Baja for tuna and other fish. That's a great event to invite someone to. We have a sportsman show. We have a trunk retreat. We have a drama coming up. Uh, those are kind of events that you can invite people to that people that don't go to church will be much more apt to attend. And uh, we call it a Matthew party because in the New Testament, Jesus uh, led Matthew, to, uh, brought him to himself. Matthew two fourteen. He passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, that was also Matthew, sitting in the tax booth, and he said, "Follow me." He got up and followed him, and it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. Now, there's a bit of a parenthesis between and uh, him and and. He is out there next to the seashore, or in a tax booth, and he sees him and he says, "Follow me," and he does. And then a little bit later. He's reclining at the table in Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of, were many of them. So Matthew has this party, and he invites a whole lot of people. They were following him. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners... And so Jesus describes himself as a friend of sinners. Matthew threw a party, invited all his friends, unbelievers, and invited Jesus. Number six, give him a booklet, a track, CD, or video with the gospel. <clears throat> this is an option. We have a lot of those things available to you. Uh, we've got a DVD that Billy Graham does. We've got uh, sermons that I or Mike have preached during Easter and other times that are basically the gospel. We have little booklets and tracks, uh, gospel uh, tracks that you can get any of those. We've got a little seven for heaven card. And often those are just an easy way to give somebody something to have them to read. Seven, invite them to a regular church service. And then eight is sort of the ultimate step and share the gospel with them and lead them to Jesus. Now, if you're, I've never done that before and you're kind of timid and don't know how to do it, 
Uh, Brandon Morris, on staff in our church, if you look in the bulletin, his title is, uh, I think, Minister of Evangelism or something of that sort. He goes out almost weekly to um, Lynn Benton, Chemeketa, the mall on the street, and just does sort of cold turkey witnessing. Now, with most of us, it sort of makes us nervous. But if you go with Brandon, he teaches you how, and by the time you're done, uh, it is no problem at all. And so we have had a number of individuals in our church go with him on a day. And uh, <clears throat> you could do that and just say, hey, Brandon, would you take me? And if you don't want to say anything, you don't have to say anything. You just listen to him. Uh, but it doesn't take very much of that kind of thing before you become bold and capable of doing that, able to lead someone to Jesus quite easily. So there's two reasons why you don't get the opportunity. More than two, but two real obvious ones. One is you don't look for the opportunity. Two is that if you had an opportunity, you wouldn't need, know what to say if you, if you got it. And God knows that if he gives you the opportunity, you'd probably mess it up. So he'll provide it for someone else. It's a simple thing to cure. You just learn how. Uh, and it's not that hard. It's relatively easy compared with learning how uh, to make bread or something else like that. Learning the skill of being a witness is easy to do. Every believer ought to be able to do that very, very intelligently. If you were a skilled, you knew how to share the gospel in a way that would make sense, You'd be amazed at how many more opportunities God would give you. And so if you're nervous about it, not sure what to do about it, contact Brandon and he'll train you. Uh, pick up some material. But step number one, anticipate trials that come to everybody sooner or later. And when it happens, say, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready for the next step that is an opportunity that you're going to provide because I'm going not to grumble, complain, I'm going to rejoice, and then you're going to bring an open door into my life to be able to share with people the faith that I have in Christ. I will appear as a bright light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Uh, it's just like growing tomatoes. Step one, step two, step three, step four. He's a witness for Jesus. You pick up your cross every day. You anticipate trials, and you know they're going to come. They always do. But when they do, you don't feel sorry for yourself. You don't think about who to blame. You simply recognize it as a front door, the front porch to the open door of an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus. And once you begin thinking that way, then you recognize every trial is an opportunity to be a witness for Christ. And then you start praying for more. Because he'll give you the strength. It's not like you're going through a trial and being miserable. You're going through a trial and it's an adventure because you have his strength to bear up under it. You have his joy. And you become very effective then as a witness for Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, calling us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us the word of reconciliation, declaring us to be your ambassadors. Lord, we if we were really honest, we'd confess that we don't do a very good job at being a witness. We can't think of the last time that we really went out of our way to try to influence somebody for you. I pray that each of us would make that our life mission and purpose, 
We are your ambassadors as though you were making an appeal through us. You've sent us even as you were sent, Lord Jesus, into the world. And you will do everything that is needed. If we bear a little fruit, you will prune us so that we can bear more fruit. And you'll open up doors, you'll provide opportunities, but we have to take the step of obedience. I pray that each of us would begin by writing some names down and praying for them every day. Recognizing that when trials come, they're an introduction to opportunities, open doors. And Lord, we would prepare ourselves to be able to share intelligently with anybody who might ask us for the reason for the hope that is within us when they see us rejoicing always instead of grumbling. Use each one of us, I pray, Lord, that our church will be very, very effective and aggressive in reaching out to the lost, thrust us into the harvest that is white all around us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we're not meeting next week or the week after. Then we will 11th and 18th, and we won't on Christmas and New Year's. And then we meet until Jesus comes. Thanks for coming.